This is Season 5, Episode 9, Raising Luminaries with Aisha Ray. Aisha, welcome to the podcast. Hello, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. I was so excited when I came across your work and um, you were referencing the hierarchy and talking about all the things that you do and your work um, around working with children. And so I've been really excited for this chat for a while. But I got even more excited when you replied to my invitation and you asked a whole bunch of really insightful catalytic questions about the safety of the experience and what I was doing to unpack my own biases. And so I actually wanted to start there because it was such um, a a beautiful pre-introduction to the conversation. Um, So you've done a bunch of these podcasts. You've been doing this work for a while. Um, From your particular viewpoint in the world and your experience, what does that look like for you? What what are the things that you're looking for when you come onto a podcast or you do a speaking gig or you're invited to something that provide an opening that... um, that just creates, I guess, a deeper sense of safety and what's not safe, I guess. Um, I think I've been invited to speak for enough um, events and invited into enough spaces at this point. I'm very privileged to have um, accepted these. Um, but I have noticed there's, there's a certain level of how deeply do you want to go into this work Um, Many people who are new to the concept of anti-oppression work and anti-supremacy and even the concept of this being something that we discuss with our children and our families as opposed to something that other people do, like professional activists do, aren't quite ready to start doing the more introspective personal work of understanding and unpacking their own biases. Mm. We're seeing that more and more often. But most of the time, you know, no one, at least no one in in my immediate surroundings wants to be seen as, say, ableist or racist or something like that. But it's an issue of, um, a lot of people want to do this work so that way they can be seen doing the work as opposed to actually do the work for the common good. Yeah. So... I have found that entering some spaces, and I'm not going to call them unsafe. I I have a lot of privilege in that. I I usually can't stay safe in many of these spaces. But in a lot of these spaces, you walk in and they just kind of want to check off like a diversity bingo. They want to have like, (laughs) okay, we invited an autistic speaker or an Asian person onto the panel. And they're not going to do the deeper work to actually make it accessible and make it a brave space where... I am safe saying the things that need to be said and where people are ready to tackle and listen to the stuff that needs to be said. So I have, I've had enough, um, I've been a, enough of a internet person, like person on the internet that, that people feel like they know that I've had to kind of build a little bit of a gate because a lot of what I do is completely free and And it's available for everybody because I want it to be accessible to those who don't have the resources for stuff locked behind a gate. But that also means that we have a lot of people who feel very comfortable just like knocking on my door and asking me to do things for them. So 
I've had to kind of build these boundaries and, you know, being raised um, as I'm female at birth and being raised as Asian in America, um, I wasn't raised to believe that I had the right to have these boundaries. So this is my learning how to set boundaries, to set a model for my kids. So they expect Asian, you know, Asian women and femmes and people who they have privilege over they expect those people to have boundaries and, and be almost aggressive in setting them. So when I first get emails to pick my brain or feature me in something that they're doing so that way they can check off their diversity bingo, I like to be, my first response is actually a little bit aggressive. And basically I'm like trying to set the tone that I'm going to be a lot and I'm going to be challenging and I'm going to you know, be a little bit difficult and maybe kick off a little bit of fragility with you are you okay with that? And are you willing to keep moving along or is that just too much? And it's mm. okay if it's too much, if they're not there yet, but I don't want to waste my time with that. And yeah. it's just, it makes it, it makes it a braver, safer space for me to be in. I love that so much. Thank you for sharing. Um, something that you alluded to in that answer. And I just wanted to dive a little deeper um, around you were saying that you want to raise your kids to have those boundaries. Um, but in it, I was reflecting on this idea that in our supremacist society, in this kind of patriarchal society, hierarchical society, that others beings, um, that the concept of rights is seems to be negotiable <laughs> rather than intractable um, associated with being human. And I wonder whether you could share a little bit more about um, just from that really macro perspective, um, what, why this obsession with normal and othering and then the prescription of rights that goes along with that, just as we start to, I guess, explore and unpack the bias and, um, yeah, just, just talk about this from multiple different perspectives. Can you share a little bit more about that from where you stand? I, I think so. <laughs> um, so my kids and I were, uh, we were going on a family walk was yesterday, this weekend. Um, and we passed by a sign that said, drive like your kids live here. I don't know if you guys have those kinds of signs, but um, people put these signs up where people, drivers tend to drive really fast through residential areas. And it's, it's kind of this reminder, like drive like your kids live here, drive more carefully and more safe, assuming that someone you care about lives here and that kicked off an interesting conversation with my kids because they couldn't quite wrap their brains around everything that that meant and the undercurrent behind it so we had to discuss and build upon this wasn't just a spontaneous discussion this is part of a long everyday discussion that we have every day about owning our identity knowing the resources that we have available to us knowing the responsibilities we have available that we are obligated to provide as a part of humanity and society um, but we are, so I am, uh, my father's side of the family is from, um, South China and Malaysia. My mother's side of the family is part of the I Irish diaspora from Ireland, from the, um, the great hunger. So both of those cultures are a little bit more collective or somewhere than another, more collective rather than independent as, um, many, many Europe, people of European descent within America in North America. So we don't really see it as other people's children or other people's children as being more important than our children. 
So we had to kind of frame this concept to our kids that some people care more about their children than they care about other people's children. Whereas we see it as um, the, the health and the safety and the well-being of our children is intricately connected to the same thing in everyone else on the planet. Um, it's more of a globalist um, collective approach. So having to explain this to a seven and a nine-year-old, like actually um, the people who put this sign up are operating under the premise that the people who are driving very fast care about their children, but don't care about the children who live here. And, and maybe that's true, but that, that concept was a little bit foreign to them. So, but that's kind of the approach that we, that we approach things with. Like if we want our children to be free, then they, their, their freedom is kind of limited. Their rights are limited and their well-being is limited by other people not having what they need. Um, which isn't to say that we don't have a ton of privileges and a ton of opportunities, just that there, there is a toll that comes with knowing that your success comes at someone else's suffering. And so what I've been doing over the course of, what I've been doing over the course of their childhood is just trying to explore with them what does it mean to live in community and more interdependent with people and kind of examine the way that I was raised and the messages that come within the dominant media, particularly in children's books and children's movies and TV that tell them that some people are more deserving than others. And some people have a right to take advantage or exploit or ignore the suffering of others for their own gain. Um, so that's a, that's something that is kind of the foundation behind what we do is that concept of like, let's examine what messages we're getting about who who is more deserving of rights and safety and health than others. Mm, I love that so much. And I love the way as you talk about this, because I guess on this show and in my work, we're talking about, what a regenerative culture is going to look like, right? So it's not what actions we're going to take and this obsession with doing, but it's like, well, who do we need to be in order to make more life-giving decisions for everyone that do recognise our interdependence with each other and, and the earth, you know? And I think that this perspective of globalism is so interesting to me at precisely the same time where we need localization so we need both perspectives right happening simultaneously that we're a globalist community and that we're living and working really locally to support um, new ways of being and new economies and new exchanges of resources to unenmesh I guess the tendrils of capitalism which are so far-reaching and so divisive and so not life-giving um, so this conversation is definitely one that we're having in our house with our, with our kids as well. I'm really curious a, a little bit more about um, this perspective that you bring into your family and then in your work. Um, did it come from an experience or experiences of having to fawn or having to conform or having to fit into dominant culture? And then what was your unlearning process like as you began to, I guess, question on a systemic level, like, hang on a minute, this doesn't feel or seem right. Do you remember that journey or certain parts of it? Hmm, okay. So I feel like that's okay. So two questions. I'm trying to wrap my brain around them. They're big questions. Um, for, as a parent, um, 
you know, I only have control over so much. We're talking about, you know, thinking global and acting local. And if you're a parent and you don't have, you know, a lot of family support or childcare and stuff like that, there's no, there's not much going, getting out and marching in the streets, especially with a disability. Mm -hmm. Um, You can, but it's just, it takes so much out of you that sometimes your energy is spent in other forms of activism. So examining what are my resources as an autistic parent, as an autistic person and a parent with the responsibilities of raising two children, what, what power do I actually have within the confines of, you know, having to be home 24 hours a day and having to, to guide these people and and change diapers and stuff like that. And the, the best thing I could come up with, the best use of my time over the, I don't know, 12 years where my kids are actually willing to listen to me <laughs> is raising, raising the next generation of leaders. And by leaders, I don't mean the definition that I was raised to believe, which is someone who tells other people what to do, but a leader in terms of someone who checks to see who's lagging behind and makes sure that they have what they need to, to catch up. So... I realized that I married into a lot of privilege. I'm a class migrant. Um, and I, and I, it's just irresistible, the concept of weaponizing that. Um, we talk a lot, especially with my older kid, who's more of a trickster type. He really relishes mischief um, about how when, the reason why we live in a wealthier neighborhood is so we can sneak in, learn how they work, and dismantle that from the inside and not to say like we're not we're not here to destroy anyone but we're here to understand how is it that people in our city live in these million dollar houses and they live with so much and they they sit with this discontent and this inaction without without taking action so like what do we need to learn about our friends and neighbors to kind of educate them on the problems that of, of their neighbors like the next town over the people don't even within our town, the people who don't have enough food and the people who don't have access to education or who are excluded from public education systems, what do they not have that we can educate the people with more privilege about? How can we kind of kick them into a little bit of urgency and recognize themselves and recognize the humanity of each other? And then what tools can we give them and kind of lay it out for them so that way they feel motivated to action? So, we think locally as a family, but while I was doing all of this work, it's, that's a lot of work and that's a lot of planning and a lot of research. And it seems kind of a waste not to share what is working and what isn't working. So when I think about raising these leaders with the foundation of kindness, which requires courage, I think about what models do they need to see in the adults around them. And for me, part of that is I can't just raise my kids to be better than me or not better, but, you know, I can't raise them to do more and be more effective and be kinder and more courageous and more interdependent and and more decolonized without actively pushing as hard as I can to do that myself. So part of that is if I can't get out of the house that much, I do have the internet. So let's let's do a form of leadership where I try things out and I admit what I'm doing and I admit where my, my spots of ignorance are and what I'm currently learning. And then I just invite people to come join me and learn along with me. Um, because part of, of that is not, not being an expert and not being like, I have all of the knowledge. And if you give me $300, I will share that magical 
knowledge with you, but more of like, you know, I don't actually know anything and I'm going to figure it out though. And I would like you to come along with me. Mm. And what a, like a manifesto of, to me, that regenerative, you know, feminist leadership, I guess, intersectional leadership of, um, yeah, it's not going to be power over. I'm not going to replicate the, you know, the systemic versions of leadership that we see that are extractive and destructive. Um, but that to actually say, I'm going to continually be a beginner. And as you were talking, I was reflecting on how, amazing parenting is as a as a entry into anti-oppression work I guess because our children come into the world completely unwilling to conform (laughs) like they learn to conform they learn to to be in the systems they don't come like that and I think that you could take that as um one style of parenting or, or an approach which is to change them or as you're talking about to that we take it as an invitation to change the world to be more inclusive of the dynamic ways that they move and are in the world and I think that that's such an exciting perspective to come from yeah and I definitely think there's a kind of a joy of youth because they have just way more energy than I do. <laughs> I'm only approaching middle age and they still have way more energy than I do, but relishing of, and we talk a lot about what are we here to destroy and what are we here to rebuild and what are we here to heal? Um, so being able to really narrow down on what we're capable of destroying and rebuilding and healing kind of empowers them to think about not what they can get out of the world, but how they can live in concert and interdependence with it. Mm, It's so beautiful. And like just thinking about the ripples of instilling that in childhood, I wonder um, there, your kids go to school, I know, but you've been doing home learning or uh, for a while, everyone has been, but I, I wonder whether you see, the battle within them or within some of the parents that you work with um, where what we're teaching and talking about and modelling and embodying at home conflicts with um, what the mainstream media, what their friends, what their peers are embodying and teaching and speaking about and how you navigate that. Uh, Let's see. So we, um, me and my partner decided to, we could move to the middle of nowhere not no offense to you know nowhere but we could move to some place where we could move to some place where like it is sustainable to afford a place to live um and we could homeschool our kids and we could have you know like not not really focus on academic I don't know accolades for the local schools and homeschool or we could move to the place that had come up beat our asses in competitions in high school and, you know, go to a place where they had the best education that we could find locally while still staying close to the people we needed to stay close to. And and then we realized we're a little weird. So maybe it would be best if we accessed a public education system that um, supposedly, you know, created conscious, kind humans. Um, So that's what we did. We moved to a very, very obscenely expensive city that has a great public education system. And I kind of figured, okay, well, 
we're all done now. Uh, this school system will kind of sand off the rough edges of however weird, my, whatever weirdness my children inherit from me or um, whatever strange things we do to raise them to be a little bit too, too much for the world. Because growing up, I was um, very traumatized by the, the school system. And by trauma, I mean the, the social sense of not having control um, feeling of dread, feeling that almost like the world needed me to suffer in order to function. And my partner was pulled out of school when he was in second grade because his teacher didn't like him asking questions. Um, I was raised by a single mom, so I didn't have the luxury of being pulled out of a toxic school system. So I ended up in a school system where teachers berated me for forgetting to do homework because I had an undiagnosed disability, um, where teachers would, you know, wrap their hands around my neck and strangle me. And I thought I was going to die in front of all my classmates. And I, I really didn't want to replicate that with my kids. So we're like, we'll go to a more progressive school system and that will solve things. But it turned out, um, I love our local school system. I love our principal. I love the teachers, but there are serious problems entrenched within our systems that even though the new focus is on social emotional learning and community building and I trust the teachers who want the best for my kids the foundations behind the entire school system I discovered over the I want to say two or three years that we were actually in the school system, were deeply embedded especially in white supremacy and colonization. Yeah. They would teach things like Literature classics, the unit that goes all the way through elementary school, that concept of good and bad, and as if there's as if there's naturally good people and naturally evil people that you have to fight against, victims and saviors, as if as if the people who are being harmed can't get themselves out of it with the right tools. They need a usually a white hero to come and rescue them. Um, and when I when I brought this to the attention of our literacy specialist, our, our principal their response was wonderful. They're like, oh my gosh, thank you for pointing this out. That feels like we just got like, duh. Um, but then they asked like, well, what should we do? And I'm like, well, that's kind of your job to figure that out. But um, it's again like that. I need a, I need more of a gate because it's like, well, what can we do? Can we meet? Can you, you know, help us redesign the curriculum? It's like, no, as a person of color, as a person, you know, a disabled person who's whose work is valued at less and it's legally um, in our country, it, it's, it's actually legal to pay me below minimum wage. I can't keep that kind of work for free. I can't provide all of this stuff in addition to raising my kids in a system that is not designed for them. Um, so I did, I did kind of figure, despite their best intentions, this still wasn't working for our kids. One of our children is autistic and hyperactive and school I saw was kind of traumatizing him and dragging him down and making him just in a constant meltdown mode, um, even though they were doing their best because they wanted to treat him as a, a symptom or they wanted to control him, get him to sit down, get him to do what they call like quiet or listening, listening body. What does a listening body look like? Like his listening doesn't look like what an, a neurotypical kid's listening looks like. Um, and it was really just kind of eroding him, you know, in the way that I saw myself being eroded when I was at that age. Even my non-autistic kid who had been, 
he's popular, he's charming, he loves helping. He went into the school system and he was kind of labeled as a troublemaker because he had big tears. Like a boy with big feelings is is almost a dangerous thing in that in that system. So when when the pandemic came and we had the opportunity to pull our kids out of the school system without anyone calling child services, we did it. And so we've been um, homeschooling slash unschooling for the last, since March of, what is it, 2020 or something. Um, so we've been, you know, working on designing our own curriculum and, and trying to focus on the stuff that we actually, that we wouldn't, that we don't feel like comes naturally within our society, like how to read critically, um, how to pay attention to personal conflict. We're very lucky have two children that are constantly constantly bickering so when we help them work through these conversations and these these conflicts how can we do it through a transformative justice approach as opposed to the approach that you'll find in many schools which is at best restorative justice but usually punitive um, and then we kind of figure we'll work through the learning math and reading later um, and I, again, have the special privilege of not worrying too much about that because my, my partner was unschooled from second grade because he was pulled out of school and no one formally taught him a lot of this stuff. He just kind of picked it up when he got interested in it. And we also have um, a lot of intellectual, um, what do you call it, some privileges in terms of um, us both being from autistic families and having some hyper-focus in research, curiosity and research that we can take advantage of. I love that answer so much and thank you for sharing your experience and your journey with that and um, we our, our eldest is due to start school next year and um, for the first six months of this year um, she we were working really hard to like get her there you know and there are all these approaches to therapy and which are, are fundamentally just telling the story of like get better to fit in and just that feeling so horrendously wrong in our bodies and in her body and um, it was the biggest relief to just decide on the unschooling route for us and to be liberated and so much repair in our family happening around our own learning styles and the way that we all move in the world and, you know, as a 35-year-old woman now really coming to terms with all the ways um, that even though I was homeschooled until I was 12, like all the way subsequently that the way that I naturally moved in the world felt wrong and bad and um, different and um, instead of instead of being celebrated and, and just having this understanding that, our daughters learn when they're interested and they learn when they're supported and enabled. Um, actually, my eldest has a complete allergic reaction to being schooled in any way. And I think that that's so wise. <laughs> that's so wise because um, she's an expert in her own learning. She knows exactly how she learns and we just have to trust and wait um, and support it when that door opens with the resources. And as you say, we're also very privileged in that sense. So um, thank you for sharing that. I think it so starts to open up these layers um, that share the perspective that you were talking about at the start, which is that no one's free if, 
if a few people aren't free or, or like there are minorities and identities which have been marginalised and excluded that none of us are free. And I think that within systems where conformity is celebrated and where success is so narrowly defined, it's impacting everyone's experience, but certainly like privilege affords you a capacity to have to be buffered from that that is not there for other folks. I'm wondering within that, um, and you talked a little bit about it, but I want to expand on it more. What do you think your, your artistic identity gave you in terms of being able to look at the world in the way that you do in terms of um, the strengths and the capacities and the competencies that are so often not talked about in, um, in those traditional schooling systems and in other systems as well, in workplaces and so on and so forth? So I'd love to talk about the what it's like to be an autistic person, a speaking autistic person. With um, I have a lot of privileges that many non-speaking autistics don't have. Um, but first, I just want to <clears throat> quickly, just in case there is anyone listening to this who are kind of envisioning what what I'm doing or what many unschoolers do as um, we we are definitely doing child-led education, but that doesn't mean that I let them shy away from topics that they are neither interested in nor interesting in exploring because none of us wants to talk about, um, like, for instance, the anti-Asian racism that is getting a little bit more visible here in the United States. That's really hard and it's really scary to tell my kids that um, there's someone in our city right now who's targeting Asian families, breaking into their homes, destroying they're um, destroying their artwork. And I, and I, that's, my kids are not allergic to that, but they, they don't want to, it's about particularly, and in some levels, you know, that pertains to us. So it's a little bit interesting, but particularly when it's say it's anti-black racism or something, cause we're not black. Um, or if it's about history or something that seems at first, like they're not interested in, um, I don't wait for them to ask me about it. Um, I, I find the media that I believe is age appropriate for them and enough to get them engaged and get them thinking. And if they're like, I really, I don't want to read this. That seems boring. And I'm like, yeah, I get that. But we need to, we need to enter more of a brave space because it's very easy for us not to talk about something like anti-black racism. Um, so here's why, here's the power that we have. Here's how it's dangerous for us as Asians raised in, um, and Asians traditionally, at least growing up in my area, are traditionally, we were raised to be kind of anti-Black. So why, why is it very important for us to, to read this thing that doesn't seem to pertain to you and discuss it and unpack it? Um, so I, that is to say, I, with unschooling, we're not, we're not focusing so much on, say, long division. Um, I will wait for an opportunity where they're doing something and I can kind of work that in through a side door. But we are actively pushing the stuff that seems like it would be so much easier to be apathetic and it would be so much easier to not worry about it. Um, so it is, it is not, not quite child-led, it's child interest, but um, we, are, we are talking about things they don't want to talk about because there needs to be a little bit of a push. I don't want them... I don't want them growing up thinking that they can just do whatever they want, I guess, you know, like um, they need to, they need to kind of rip their hearts open frequently in order to, to stay connected to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. um, oh, so 
as in terms of being an autistic person. Um, so I am an autistic person. I have, um, <clears throat> I have executive functioning disabilities and sensory processing disorders and stuff like that, that, that do make navigating daily life challenging, leaving the house hard, parenting even difficult, even though I'm a very competent parent. Um, but I was raised to hide those, um, you know, like I, a lot of people are surprised when I tell them I'm autistic because they're like, you don't, you don't seem autistic. You don't look autistic. You're just making that up or, um, which is a, is very invalidating because it says, I don't see how hard you're working to make me as a non-autistic person comfortable. Because the truth is, even the people I'm close to, if I start moving my body the way that my brain tells me to move my body, they won't be able to hear me. They'll just be too focused on my movement. So I have had both the trauma of being going through, you know, informal types of compliance therapy and also the privilege of being cognitively, it's accessible for me to kind of maintain that constant level of pain. Like I can stare at someone's eyes and I can do the counting to make sure I look away at the right time. And it takes all of my effort. Um, and that, that allows me to move through the world much easier than say an autistic person who, who stims and can't hide it. Not like stimming should be something that we do hide, um, but it does affect the way that holistic people see us. Um, and I also have the privilege of being hyper- lexic and, and um, being eloquent and being able to process my thoughts into a, a form that holistic people can absorb and find value in. Um, so I've been able to make myself into a, a product that is easy to swallow. And again, just like moving, moving into a space where I navigate among many white wealthy people, um, I'm trying to weaponize that in a way that says, hey, look at me, I'm autistic and I'm a person. So now can we drag you a little bit further and see the people who don't have my privileges but share my identity also as people? Um, we have a few towns away. We have a center called the Judge Rottenberg Center where even though it's banned all around the world, it's illegal to use on animals, it's illegal to use on neurotypical people. Um, it is legal in that organization to shock and torture autistic and, and adults with cognitive disabilities to get them to comply. Like if they stand up and the people there don't want them to stand up, they have shock devices that they wear on their bodies and it's legal to shock them and torture them. And I'm trying to think about what does it take from me to connect with people who are okay with that or who are okay looking away from that and say, hey, those are people just like me who can't hide it as well. And we need to fight to get that blocked. If anyone's interested, you can search the hashtag stop the shock. There's petitions and things like that. Um, but it is, it's a constant, um, you think of like constantly sucking in your gut so you can appear thinner. So that way as a, as a woman or a femme, you're allowed to move through the, the world without, your weight being the thing that people look at a judge you on. It's kind of like that, but like sucking in your whole being all the time. Um, but in terms of, there are some gifts that come with it. I mean, like it's, 
it's that it's that same I don't want to reuse that like different not less kind of thing because I that is weaponized a lot for people being okay with useful autistics autistic mm-hmm. people provide value for holistic people being okay but the rest of them that you know the the autistic people who don't show an immediate value to capitalism or to productivity in the, in the ways that they value um i am a unfortunately a useful autistic fortunate for me but unfortunate for you know arguing and pulling for my inherent worth as a human even if i can't provide things so my ability to hyperfocus on single issues, my ability to focus in on details and then see patterns of behavior. For example, how does supremacy show up in our everyday speech and in the books that we read to our children? I'm really good at identifying that. And that's something I wouldn't be able to do if I, if I didn't have my autistic neurology. Um, my ability to stay really, really focused on that, even if it means pissing off other people because... Um, I'm, I'm less beholden to this is the way everyone else in the, in the herd is doing it. I don't have that instinct to follow. Um, so that is, a, that is something that I leverage, um, but it's also something that very often gets me into trouble. And it's, it's a conscious decision to, to try and use it for good, I guess. Mm. Thank you for sharing that and all the nuance of that. And I so appreciate the... The framing and and really like my experience in my body of um, of even that question, you know, like uh, you're so right. It, it it's framing. It's still framing it in the language and the perspective of usefulness in a capitalist sense. Whereas rights are rights, and all beings have them, right? So it's um, the nuance that you speak with in that answer, and then your own experience um, is really. Um, catalytic so I really appreciate that um I want to go before we finish up to talk about your work with books for littles a little more um it's this ongoing journey for my husband and I to find books and resources um, for our little people that ask and talk to the big questions and help uh, shed insight on their experience in the world and also um, to meet challenging conversations. And I heard you um, share in, in another podcast, I think you said the words niceness is trash and I just loved that so much. It's like lit something <laughs> up in me. <laughs> but can you share a little more about the work you do with Books for Littles and also the difference between kind and nice um, and what kind of leaders you hope to be emerging from, from the work that you do and the curating that you do for parents? Uh, so briefly, the difference between niceness and kindness and our mission for Raising Luminaries is to raise um, the next generation of kind and courageous leaders. And I add courageous explicitly because that's required for kindness, uh, because kindness is not passive. It's not, um, it's not letting things be. Kindness is, is a gritty action almost. Um, and it's been kind of sugar-coated, but what a lot of people see as kind is actually just niceness. Niceness is smoothing things over, saving face, um, allowing, allowing the existing power structures to stay in place and not provoking that. Um, it's just, you know, 
manners are awesome and, and manners can be used for kindness. But a lot of the things where people are like, be nice, it's saying don't don't poke at the existing power system. Don't point out how our traditions are now outdated and no longer fit society the way that it exists today. Um, so what we focus on is kindness, which requires, requires paying attention and it requires listening and it requires compassion and it requires seeing yourself in others and others in yourself and then having the, the courage to take action to make sure that that kindness is is moving and circulating throughout humanity. It's something that moves around, right? It's not it's not a stagnant thing. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, whenever I have, you know, we have standard tone policing. We have people who are like, "How dare you talk about? <laughs> how dare you talk about racism?" or or point out that um, point out that I'm what I just did, my behavior was problematic or, or hurt someone. And that's, that's a call to niceness. They want me to be nice. They want me to, if I am even going to bring attention to it, I need to do it in a way that, that soothes them and reminds them that they are human and that they, their intent mattered more than the impact. And that's not my job. Um, a lot of people see it as my job because I am a feminine presenting Asian person um, where we get usually sidelined to the role of sidekicks and support and IT tech, right? Um, but it's my reminder, that's not my job to make sure that you are, that, you know, you are comfortable with your behavior. It's my job, if I'm being kind, to point out when your behavior is not in keeping with who I believe you want to be. So if I see a well-intentioned white lady saying something that's harming me as a person of color, I am going to, sometimes I have the right to choose to just not engage, but I, I'm going to point out like that was, that was, that causes harm. And that's not nice because the immediate reaction is one of fragility and anger usually. And how dare you? But, um, but it's kind because even if they're pissed off at me and they never talk to me again, um, the kinder thing to do is let them know like, hey, I know that you don't want to be seen as racist. What you just did was kind of racist and caused harm against people of color. So we got to talk about that. I have to draw your attention to it. Um, so within that framework um, and within the framework of, um, you know, the those of us who have been live on land um, that has been colonized. I lived on Massachusetts and Wampanoag land traditionally throughout my entire life. Um, what is our job to honor our ancestors? Um, I come from a Chinese family that participates in ancestor worship and veneration. And I also live on land where a connection to um, indigenous ancestors is an important way to inform how we move through the world and steward the, our bioregions and our society for the next generations. So what does it mean? What are our responsibilities to incorporate this, um, this pop culture concept of kindness and really drag it into like, what does it actually mean for us as humans today? Um, as our um, elder Grace Lee Boggs pointed out, um, revolution is when we examine our current generation's fixations and our outdated definitions of humanity and we redefine how we are as humans and how we build the society to suit these humans. So 
that has to line up with where the market is. And the market is a lot of parents with power and privilege who have time and energy and feel social pressure to be active parents and raise what we call nice or kind children. So how can I grab those people who are searching for quick and easy, you know, six quick and easy tips to, mm -hmm. to raise kind humans, right? I grab those people and then I kind of smash their brains open a little bit with like, actually, <laughs> you're looking for the wrong thing, buddy. Um, but also like, here's how we can, here's how I can give you some baby steps to start this and until you self-identify as a person who really owns kindness and really owns courage and then give you the tools you need and make it accessible for you to model instead of a lot of people want their children to grow up successful. And especially us as mothers, we see ourselves as martyrs who have to, you know, burn ourselves to keep our children alive and have them succeed. But instead, what does it mean to actually model activism and courageous generosity for them? So I have, you know, these, as you get deeper and deeper into my work, as you kind of, I've built in these, these gates to have, access into what I do and as people add these commitments saying like yeah I'm gonna do this yes it's worth it um I kind of pull back the curtain a little bit and be like this this had nothing to do with your kids this has everything to do with you um because it doesn't matter how you raise your kids and what special tutoring sessions you send them to if you're nice trash like your kids are gonna grow up to be performative curated pinteresty nice trash so not to say there are no people who are trash, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's books for littles. It started out as because that's what people were searching for. That's what people were Googling. That's how we made um, our organization and found our people at first and, and kind of onboarded them onto the path of smashing the curiarchy of understanding transformative justice and decolonization people who normally would be like, those are big words. I can't handle that right now. Just don't call me racist. We've, we've kind of, you know, gotten deeper into that. And now Books for Littles is actually the active part of it is ending at the end of this year. Um, every month I kind of wrap it up and I put out, you know, what do I want the next micro generation of parents who are raising kids, you know, 10 years younger? Um, what do I want them to have available? But also, I am not raising toddlers anymore, and it would be unethical of me to tell um, parents of toddlers how they should be doing anything because they live in a different post-COVID society than I did uh, when I was raising my kids because they're seven and nine now. Um, and we're moving more into, based on the guidance from um, the Indigenous mentors that I've, I've worked with and the elders that I've, I've learned from, um, we're focusing more on, in our current society, social media is turning humans into commodities and we are the product. Um, in the attention economy, we are being pulled in directions that serves no one but corporations. So how do we counter that? And from what I've learned from our elders is by building deeper one-on-one -on -one and small group relationships. And so when raising luminaries kind of archives and makes available all the books for littles stuff that we've done, which hopefully is classic. It's, it's all about critical reading. It's about how to, how to not, which books do you want to read? When people ask me like, what are the problematic books and what are the books I should read? It's like, it's not about that. It's pick up whatever book is closest to you and, and read into what it tells you about society and what it means to be human. Um, but we're going to be focusing more on what is the next, what is the next revolution need? 
um, if we look in terms of little micro five-year, six-year revolutions. What do our kids need as they age? What do our kids need once they've already mastered that critical reading aspect of understanding the media? I love the word micro-revolution, for starters. That is, that is amazing. And I also love hearing the evolution of your work and the focus on um, building meaningful small group relationships and equipping folks to have those conversations. And I think that it's something I say all the time is we're fundamentally, because we've been turned into commodities and because we exist within the construct of capitalism, that we've fundamentally lost skills like it's a skill to have courageous conversation to have compelling conversation to be in diverse community there is a whole a whole swathe of things that I think I call it regenerative relationship but sits under that in terms of skills and understanding and critical awareness that I think is so important to be fostering in our kids but through our own embodiment of it and it's going to require some tenderness as, as we, in a post-COVID world too, I think. So on that note, I guess, to finish, I would love to hear your vision um, for smashing the hierarchy. And I know you spoke to it a little then, but looking in your lifetime, uh, what would you hope to see in terms of who we are and how we identify? Um, and this, so this is nothing that I came up with on myself. This is almost standard operating procedure for um, creating a revolution, but finding the people who are the most targeted because, you know, wherever they're suffering, someone is profiting. So we know who's profiting. We can tell those are the people who are taking up all the air in the room and taking up all the wealth. So what we need to do, because those people benefit from hiding and rendering invisible the people that they are causing suffering and the people they are targeting and exploiting is we need to take the effort to actually look at who really is being the most targeted, who's left behind, who are we painting as um, lazy or who are we painting as incapable when really like that's, that's the concept of being incapable as a human doesn't make any sense. Like if, if you are a human who is living, a human who is, um, you know, being moving through the world, you're not incapable of being human. Like you, you're doing it, you're surviving. No, no offense against the dead. But um, when I think about like, what can I do that would have the biggest impact? And it's following and listening to the people who I have them, who I have privilege and they don't. Um, finding the people who, when I order something off of Amazon, who are the people being exploited by that? Um, when I provide, and this is this is calling into calling into attention the need for accountability and transparency. I have a full um, accountability statement on my website that is is dear to me. Um, when I provide free education on the internet about anti-racism and anti-ableism, um, how am I profiting off of that? And who is hurt because they can't they can't profit off of advocating for themselves. Um, so I think about like a portion of the, I make my money from people who donate money because they want to see what I'm doing, keep going. So a portion of that has to go back into um, own voices organizations, first voices organizations and first voices people. When you think about um, 
the traffic that I get, how can I redirect that traffic and not just hold it here and collect, you know, donations and stuff, but also direct them to people who are doing actually the same similar work with um, different mediums who are more directly impacted. For instance, Bellamy Schofer of Revolutionary Humans has been single parenting with a chronic illness, with no support, family support, um, partner support throughout the entire pandemic. And um, how can I drive more of the people who trust me towards revolutionary humans, um, especially and this isn't, this isn't a charity case. This is, you know, they do art-based, tangible work with kids. I read books, but you can only do so much. Not everyone is a, is a reader type of learner. So, like, how can I drive that traffic more to people who are even more impacted by climate change and uh, pandemic and oppression? So that way they can sell their work and, and boost their own voices because... At some point, I'm happy to boost some voices, but it, it shouldn't be. I would like to render my job obsolete. I don't, I don't want people coming to my website to find out how to buy books by Black women. Like, I want them going to websites run by Black women on how to run, how to find these books, right? Um, so how can we pass on whatever we're getting and how can we first listen to the people who are most targeted? And they'll just tell us what to do. It, like, we spend a lot of our time trying to come up with these glorious, fancy ways of being saviors. But in the end, what is what does a single mom um, actually need, right? Like, what do they actually need us to do? And to build those deeper relationships, find out what what they need. And so that's my example of like, I would like to partner up with organizations like Revolutionary Humans, which I am, um, and kind of, you know, like weaponize whatever, leverage whatever privileges that I have for that. And I think that that's just the, that's kind of like the basic standard best practices of orchestrating a revolution is just making sure to step aside, make sure it's not about yourself, make sure to listen to those most impacted. I love what a beautiful way to end. And I feel like revolution coursing through my body. Um, thank you so much for the conversation, for your openness, for um, the education, um, which has, yeah, that you, you have cultivated over so many years of doing this work and your lived experience as well. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I appreciate the amplification and the discussion and um you know doing your own work to carry your people so that way we can you know scooch everyone just a little bit a little bit more to you know um smashing the curiarchy destroying the things that need to be destroyed that kind of stuff <laughs> because i love the word scooch <laughs> he's just scooching hey eh?